the flip of the calendar did not conclude all of life's troubles. 2021 may have put an end to 2020, but not an end to its sorrows. Front page news still informs us of turmoil. Our jobs unrelentingly press upon us. Doctor's appointments, tests pile up. Fear of infection slows us down, and we still have relationships under stress. But God invites us to give him praise. So where do we find hope for praise in the midst of sorrow? We can turn to the book of Psalms. The songbook for God's people, but more than that, a rich repository of hope. Because the Psalms teach us how to live and how to love God. They are human words spoken in praise to God, but they are then God's words spoken in truth to us. Now, the Psalms, the 150 Psalms that we have in our Bible, are actually divided into five books. Now, we don't normally notice this because we carry them around in one Bible. Even if you had just a copy of the Psalms, they would come all bound together, all 150. But, But as you flip through it, you realize that historically, the Psalms have been divided into five books. And the end of each book ends with a word of praise, a doxology, a word giving glory to God, an exaltation of God in his grace and mercy. Psalm 41, our psalm for this morning, ends with these words, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Psalm 72 concludes, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Psalm 89 concludes, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Psalm 106, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, amen, praise the Lord. And then the Psalms as a whole are concluded with the great doxology of Psalm 150, which reaches that crescendo, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And so for the next five Sundays, we're going to look at the conclusion to each of the books of the Psalms, because each one sets us into the sorrow of life and yet pushes us forward toward praise. Consider what it means to offer praise to God even when we feel like we are at the very edges of life, and whether 2021 feels to you like a new beginning with the new year, the return to school, the the pressing on in your annual resolutions, or it feels like we are at the end of ourselves. The Psalms offer us hope. And so listen to the word of God spoken to us, his people. This is Psalm 41. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me 
whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's come to God now in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the hope of your gospel, for the power of your word. I pray that you would instruct us and guide us. Lord, as we feel beaten down by life, as we feel, feel pressed against by the, the worries and sorrows of this life, I, I pray that you would give us hope. For those that lie today like the psalmist on their sickbeds, for those that have to, to join us at a distance because of their health, Lord, I pray that, that in your words of Scripture, you would show them the truth of your grace. For those that are, that are trapped in sorrow, that feel betrayed by those closest to them, may your word provide comfort. Lord, you are gracious to us since we come to you in the hope of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The Peanuts comic strip filled newspapers for 50 years. In one of the final daily comics, the artists returned to a common theme. The kids are throwing snowballs at one another. Charlie Brown and Linus lob snowballs over their, their little fort at their friends. But in the corner of the frame sits Snoopy, that normally rambunctious dog who would have been right in the fray. He's pondering a snowball in his hands, and the caption reads, Suddenly the dog realized that his dad had never taught him how to throw snowballs. A commentator explains, after 50 years of drawing Snoopy and telling his imaginative tales, Charles Schultz brings the beagle back down to being merely ordinary again. The dog faced the limits that all dogs face. Dogs can be targets for snowballs, but they can't throw them. See, Schultz himself faced limitations. He was sick with cancer and near the very end of his life. And he knew his comic strip was at its end. He admitted feelings of anger and despair. In his final television interview, a frail and feeble Schultz said, I never dreamed that this was what would happen to me. All of a sudden, it's gone. It's been taken away from me. Schultz admitted that he felt betrayed by God for taking away his health, for taking away his life for taking away his comic strip before the story was really done. A fellow cartoonist and a friend of Schultz, Lynn Johnson, wrote of his last days. He had control of the Peanuts universe for 50 years, but he had no control over his own death, and he did not accept it graciously. He just wasn't ready. And so his rambunctious character, Snoopy, sits helplessly on the page. What would it look like to face sickness with hope? To endure hardship 
with confidence in God. David, in Psalm 41, gives us a glimpse of gospel hope. Even in sickness, God is praised. Even when friends betray us, God is faithful. Notice the, the context of the psalm. And, and, and it, yes, we can, we can wrestle with the, the different points in David's life in which this could have historically happened. But David sets the, the, the frustrations in poetic context so that you and I could sing this psalm as well. And so what is the context? It's the sickness of a man. Look at verse 3. Who is being sustained by God on his sickbed. It's the prayer of one who in his illness is asking God to restore him to full health. A man who's so sick that verse 8 says that, that people look at him. They see how horrific it is and they say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. A man in critical care with what seems like little hope. But it's not merely the physical sickness that weighs upon David the psalmist in Psalm 41. It's the betrayal of people around him. Look at the, the language of opposition that, is, that, is, that fills this passage. Look at verse 5. My enemies say of me in malice. And he's, he's setting it up so that we understand there is, there is strong opposition against him. When will he die and his name perish? When will he be gone and we even forget about him? And we've spent some time as a family helping my dad pack up, and so we've gone through some memories and seen pictures of, of grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents whose names, unless it's written on the back of the picture, we have forgotten. And, and, and David feels like, but that's what they're asking for right now, that my name will be, will be wiped away, that I will be forgotten, that this sickness will destroy me. He, he speaks in verse 7 of all those who hate him, they're whispering about him. They imagine the worst for him. But the betrayal is not just against those that, that have opposed him in the past. It's even more tragic. Because verse 9 takes us into the inner circle of friendship. Look with me there at verse 9. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The ones I could previously trust, who would sit for a meal with me, who would fellowship with me, even he has turned against me. Even he has lifted up his heel against me. And that, that image is, is horrific. Because the only time you, you would see the bottom of someone's foot is if they have knocked you down, or if their foot is raised to strike you. It, it, it's, it's a poetic image that we feel the horror and the struggles of life. And yet many of us could write this psalm today. You feel the burden of sickness. You're sitting behind masks today. Because we as a, as a society feel the, the weight of sickness and death around us. We have neighbors and loved ones who lie on their sick beds, who cry out to God for restoration. We've, we know the betrayal of, of people who seem opposed against us. Not just, not just out there, but, but our closest friends whose opinions have, have become clear in recent months, and we think, how could we ever move forward in relationship? If you think that way, how could I ever stand beside you? We feel betrayed by those closest to us. And yet, there's a phrase that's repeated in this psalm which serves to, 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 as, the, as the pillars which uphold our hope in this passage. Look with me at verses 4 
and 10. It's the prayer of David. Verse 4, O Lord, be gracious to me. And then he lists the opposition that has come against him, even the close friends who have betrayed him. And he, and he again repeats it in verse 10, But O Lord, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me. It's a cry to God in the midst of sorrow and sadness. That no matter what has happened, no matter what opposition you face, the Lord will be gracious to you. For that is the very character of God, the one who revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh, as the covenant creator of of his people, the one who enters into relationship with his people. He is the one who is gracious. And so when facing opposition, when facing sorrow, we can turn to God. When even those closest to us seem to have betrayed us, we have not been abandoned. He is always with us. His grace is always sufficient. God sustains us and strengthens us. And so when you find this hope in God's grace, the free, undeserved gift of God given to you, then it, then it changes the way you interact with other people. Yes, in that moment, you may feel like you have no one but God. Everyone else has abandoned you. And yet you're not left in that moment. You're, you're, you're sent to serve others. Because look at the way the psalm begins. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. See, the the person who can pray, O Lord, be gracious to me, will be the person who shows grace and mercy to those most in need. The physical poor who have no one else to look out for them. The the language, though, of of, of poverty here is language that that moves beyond just the the stuff that you have or the the bank accounts that you have. It's It's the frailty and the weakness of life. It's those who are helpless. And so one commentator says, one who has never helped another should not expect help from God. See, the the one who who can pray to God, oh Lord, be gracious to me, is the one who sees the needs of others and responds with mercy. No, it's it's not as if God only gives you grace because you've been gracious. It, It actually works the other way. Because you have received the grace of God, you have been humbled. You've been put in the position that that you don't deserve anything. You are weak and helpless yourself, and yet God has proven himself to be gracious to you. And so that's going to flow out into the way you care for others. The grace of God humbles us so that we can serve others. We don't look at the poor, the weak, the helpless, and say, fix yourself, get this cleaned up, and I'll be back. This isn't like mom or dad checking in on you after you've been given the command to clean your room and they come back 15 minutes later to see if you've even gotten started. And they say, okay, we're we're not even thinking about what happens next until you get this room cleaned up. And and, and parenting, that's sometimes the the right and necessary strategy, but in in our relationship with God, he always begins with grace. Because we're not just people who live in messy rooms. We're people who have murdered others with our thoughts who have hated others, who have destroyed them. And and so, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Because in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. When you have received grace, then you will give grace to others. You will look to help them up, to strengthen them. And not not merely passing by quickly to to sort of get it over with, but, but you'll be somebody who will invest your life in the care for the weak and the vulnerable. Somebody who will welcome a child into your home. Somebody who will serve in in vulnerable places. Somebody who will say, I will will care for the ones that the Lord looks upon. Because the Lord has protected me. The Lord keeps me alive. The Lord has blessed me here in this land, verse 2 says. 
Not so that I can, can live alone as a hermit, trusting in God, but so that I can serve others. And when David cries out to God for grace, he does so from that humble posture. Look again at verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. And notice the the parallelism, what's set there. Because he understands God's grace, he says, Heal me, for I have sinned against you. This is his confession of sin, his admission of need, his his confession that, that I am one who is poor and needy. I am the one who is weak spiritually. I need your grace. Grace which is undeserved. And so this sets the, the later verses in context. Because if, you, if I just pulled verse 12 out of this passage, didn't give you the rest of, this, the, the rest of it, you, you might read, but you, God, have upheld me because of my integrity. And, and if you just read verse 12, you might flip that, that cleaning your room analogy around and say, oh, because I cleaned up my room, I got blessing from God. Because I am somebody who is worthy I've got blessing from God. But remember, verse 12 follows verse, verse 4. It's said in the context of one who throws himself upon the mercy of God, understanding that, that God has upheld me. And in, in upholding me, my, my integrity can be shown forth to others. It's not that God looked at me and said, well, Kevin, actually, he's pretty great, so I'm going to give him grace. No, Kevin is a miserable sinner who needs grace But in receiving that grace, then David can say, God upholds me because of my integrity. In in loving God and responding to him and serving the poor in caring for the weak, we see the grace of God flow to others. But but it's not just verse 12 that that is troubling to us when we read through this passage that that sort of pushes back against grace. Verse 10 might even be more direct in pushing back. In verse 10... David's, having been betrayed by a close friend, he, he, verse 10, repeats that phrase, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me, this pillar which upholds the psalm. But then he says, and raise me up that I may repay them, that I may repay my enemies, that I may get justice for those who have come against me. And again, we might think, does David understand what grace looks like? Because if he just wants God to give him enough strength, to sort of in that climactic moment be able to pull his sword and, and seek vengeance on the battlefield. Well, then what kind of understanding of grace does David have? And perhaps for you, that, that actually is your frustration when you think about coming to church, when you, when you wrestle with religion. You look at, at religious people and say, say they, they seem so self-righteous. They seem so, so, so even at times, violent. Willing through history to sort of push their agenda to the very end, to, to, to raise themselves up, that they might repay others, that they might have vengeance. Because you can see the evil that results from religious zealotry through history. But the, the scriptures make clear that vengeance, that repaying evil, that ultimate justice belongs to the Lord. Moses in Deuteronomy, at the, the end of the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 32, he, he, he quotes God for us, and God says, vengeance is mine. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will quote from that and to, to remind us as believers to treat others with love and mercy. In, in Romans 12, verse 19, Paul writes to the church, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so as Christians, we understand that that the, the payback that comes against people isn't payback that we try and take personally. It's not that we we try and make sure everyone who has harmed us will be harmed in in equal ways. No, we trust that God will do what is right. We pursue justice in this life, but not vengeance. We don't try and harm another. We try and restore. And, And remember, when David writes these words, raise me up that I might repay them, what's his vocation? Like, what's his job title? What's at the top of his resume? He is king of Israel. Which means if justice is going to be served, if justice will be restored, who will bring it about? The anointed king of Israel. So David actually, I think, can pray for for vengeance more directly, for justice more directly than you or I can. Because I'm not the anointed king of Israel, despite the way I sometimes act. I am not God's chosen one. But David was. But remember, the the reason that you and I don't need to take personal revenge, and and again, I don't think David is talking about personal revenge. As king, he would be seeking justice for all of his people, for the weak and the vulnerable, the powerful, seeking to bring about righteousness even for his enemies. But as you and I pursue justice, we never personally take vengeance into our own hands because we see that the anointed king has taken judgment for us. Because Psalm 41 doesn't merely end this first book of Psalms. The the words of this psalm then are quoted by Jesus himself. The greater son of David, the, the anointed king of Israel, the one who understands what it is to be betrayed by one who was close to him, the one who understood opposition against the righteous purposes of his father. And so in the Gospel of John, that's in the the New Testament, John is one of those men who walked with Jesus. In John chapter 13, you, you remember there, Jesus got down on his knees as the servant and washed the filthy feet of his disciples. This on the night of his betrayal and arrest. And, and John says in John 13 verse 11, he says, Jesus knew who was to betray him. Jesus knew that that one of the 12 who had been with him side by side in ministry for three years, one of the men who had heard him preach a gospel of love, who had seen him heal and restore the weak and the poor, one of these men would betray him. You know his name, Judas, the betrayer of Jesus. And so Jesus, having washed his disciples' feet, then says in, in John 13, verse 18, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. He's, he's pointing out that there's one here who will betray. He says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 41. He says, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place that when it does make, take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus, the Messiah, faced the opposition of Psalm 41. And see, that means you and I are then set free from from seeking personal revenge because Jesus took all of it upon himself. All of the sin committed by me or against me is taken by Jesus, the Savior. He is the one who will bring about justice, and so I can trust him to bring 
vengeance. Because David, in Psalm 41, experienced the betrayal of a friend. And so as God's king, he pursues justice. Jesus, in the Gospels, in history, was betrayed by a friend. And as God's king, he brings justice. Justice for us through his death on the cross. He, the, the full payment of sin made for us. Because you and I are those who have turned away from God. Those who have betrayed him. Who have rejected him. Who have responded in hatred and anger. And yet grace is available here. If we confess our sins. See, when the gospel captures our lives, then we will be changed. We will see the, the needs of the weak and vulnerable and respond. We will seek justice for the oppressed. And, and we will respond in praise. Because remember, as, as we started, each one of these psalms, because they conclude a book, a collection of psalms, ends with a doxology, with a word of praise. See, it's a psalm of sickness and betrayal. And yet, how does it end? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. The psalm began with blessing falling upon a man. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. But it ends with that blessing being returned back to God by everyone. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. From everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And that phrase, amen and amen, it's, it's, it's not just a conclusion. It, it's just not just, well, the end. Right? And, and that's how we often think of it, because we, we put it at the end of a service. We put it at the end of a prayer. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As if we're saying, in Jesus' name, the end. Pick up your forks, let's go. No, what does amen mean? It's, a, it's an affirmation that means, so be it. Let it be so. This is true. And so when you say, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting everlasting. God's people shout amen and amen. It is true. This is the full and final truth. And, and that, that double amen, amen and amen, it, it, it's only found here in the Psalms and only in these Psalms, the, the first three, and the first three books of, the, of the, the Psalter. This affirmation that God is the King, the God who loves us. Now earlier this week, the definition of amen was in the news. Now, the violence in our nation's capital in the middle of the week obscured the news stories from Monday. But when Congress gathered on Monday, a, a congressman's prayer sent reporters to trace the etymology of this Hebrew word, amen. Because the congressman concluded his congressional prayer with these words, amen and a woman. Now, the congressman intended the pun to give dignity to his female colleagues. Because the word amen sounds in English like it has a gender-specific reference to men. And so he was trying to, to include his congressional colleagues. Now, the, to, to say amen and a woman. Now, I'm not sure the pun works. Like, even, I mean, even in like, I mean, I'm, I'm all for the worst dad, dad jokes available. But I'm not sure this pun works at the level of, of even humor. And certainly at the level of the theological affirmation of what is, what is the word amen supposed to do at the end of a prayer. And, and as I was preparing, I thought, oh, the weak, 
that I'm preaching on one of the three amen and amens found in all of scripture, a congressman has, has sent reporters to, to trace the, the roots of this word to give me a definition so that you are all prepared. I mean, what, what help provided to me this week in Washington? But we can offer this double affirmation in sorrow and sadness when we hear the blessing of God, we can shout amen and amen. And maybe even the location of it was helpful for us this week. The, 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 the poor theology on display in our nation's capital. Because just a couple of days later, we would see violence take place. And armed in, intruders and trespassers walk into that same room. And so maybe in a week when we feel like the foundations of our society have been shaken, we need to hear this kind of word. That when I am lying on my sickbed and in illness, when people around me say, he's done, it's over, I need to hear the words of Scripture, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Oh dear church, lift up your voice. We have confidence, whether on our deathbeds or in full recovery, that God is with us. We have hope in the power of God, whether the news brings us comfort or chaos. We can lift up our voices. We can cry out with the psalmist, O Lord, be gracious to me. And then you can add your voice to that great chorus of hope. Blessed be the Lord. He is the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And church, shout the words of affirmation. Amen and amen. Jesus the King reigns. Lord, we need your blessing for we feel helpless and hopeless. We feel the weight of sorrow as we lift up the prayers of our brothers and sisters who suffer around the world. As we lift up in prayer those in our own congregation who feel the sorrow of sickness and death. And so Lord, we come to you. We thank you that you teach us even how to pray. That your word sustains and strengthens us. That we can just repeat the words of the psalmist, O Lord, be gracious to us. And so for those who don't know Jesus as Savior, I pray that they would continue that prayer, that they would be able to say today with truth and honesty, heal me, for I have sinned against you. Lord, let us as a church be set free with hope and joy because of the power of your word. Let us lift our voices and give you praise so that the watching world would, would hear and be able to respond to the grace that is offered to us. And so, Lord, we come to you in hope, asking for your sustaining power. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and we add our affirmation that you are the one who deserves all blessing and praise. Amen.